Might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and with me is my only co-host for tonight. She's in the co-pilot seat. She is cooler than Finn, walking around in Snoke's oversized golden gown, slippers included. It's Lindsay. Man, you could have even just stopped at, I was upgraded to the co-pilot seat and I would have been happy. But to add all that, I mean, if if you're going to sit up here, you got to have, you know, the gold robes and everything like that. Oh, I I do. I pictured the gold robe with the slippers feet up on the dash, kicking back with not quite my regular Ray-Bans, but like Ray's goggles from Jacko. And a fuzzy tauntaun in your hand. Oh, of course. Got to have the fuzzy tauntaun in your hand. (laughs) (laughs) So, Lindsay, what's new with you? What are you Star Warsing lately? You know, I have to be honest, I have been Star Warsing other people Star Warsing. I feel like it is just such a fun time to be a fan when we're all living in the hype of Galaxy's Edge and all these great books coming out and the road to Rise of Skywalker. It's just fun to be on Twitter right now and just be online and starting to interact more with other fans who are still getting really amped up about this before the post-movie debates come out, we'll say. Yeah, before all that drama starts up about mm-hmm. uh, Ben Demption and Raylo and, and things like that. Uh, it's so, well peek behind the curtain we're recording this show a little bit early so uh, if any star wars news has happened um we're not recording on our normal normal friday um but mark just released a new episode of forever star wars actually talking about um ben solo and that was it was really eye-opening some of the parallels that he brought between um vader and kylo and and just kind of putting um some perspective on the different um I guess, opinions that people have about the character and thoughts that people have about the character. I, I'm kind of all over the place right now, but I'm reading some books. I'm catching up on comics, but the thing I'm really Star Warsing, and shout out to uh, Skyhoppers for this, Ben, if you're listening, thank you. Archiveofyourown.com.org.something, just search Archive of Your Own, has downloads of the radio dramas the star wars original trilogy radio dramas that you can get for free no kidding yes it's kind of a pain in the took us to get them because you have to like download them and unzip them and rename them and things like that but it's totally worth it so i've been um yeah i've been catching up on those i'd listened to the a new hope when i got that one on audible but i went ahead and, and got all of those so um yeah i'm really excited about that um i'm part of the way through uh which one am I listening to? Empire Strikes Back. It's part of the way through that one. And then I'll go to um, Return of the Jedi. But I'm also catching up on uh, on some podcasts. I found some other great podcasts through, of course, our affiliations, um, our, our, our connection with uh, Sith Talk and Jedi Temple Archives. And I'm going to be on Knights of Ren pretty soon. So really excited about 
the fandom right now. It's nice when we're not arguing about stuff all the time. It really is. It's like Star Wars can be fun, guys. Can't we just keep it like this all year? It's like the scene in Mean Girls where she's like, remember when we were in second grade? I wish we could go back to that. I would bake you all a cake filled with rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> and you can... <laughs> She doesn't even go here. <laughs> yeah. But that's how I feel about Star Wars right now. I just want to keep it like this forever and bake everyone a nice pork filled cake. Well, and I, I went through and kind of cleaned out my Twitter feed recently, um, which is not as exciting as it sounds. And so, like, I feel like my Twitter's a lot more positive right now. Just everything's everything's better. So, speaking of better things, um, I am not a better thing. I'm not a good thing. I'm a terrible person um, because... I go and I come on the show and I'm like, hey, leave us a rating and review and I will read it on the podcast. And then I don't. (laughs) I can't even help you out and be like, no, you're not that bad because that's exactly what you just did. No, that's yes. No, it's exactly what I did. So uh, we got a new um, rating and review that I'm going to go ahead and actually read on the show. It's only a month late. A month and change, and I apologize uh, in, in, for for that. Um, but Melanie Marquita uh, sent us a a review, and she she said, "I am so happy I found this podcast, and even more so when I found out that there are several within the Clashing Sabers network." Side note: Of course, you get Starships, Forever Star Wars, Don't Burn the Sacred Text, Big Things Coming. Oh, actually, ooh no, Big Things will have happened. No, Big Things are coming. Yeah, stick with the review, and then we'll tease. Okay. All right. Um, I enjoy this podcast so much. It's made by people who love Star Wars, for people who love Star Wars. That joy shines through. I lost my spot, so I'm going to keep reading in just a minute. Uh, That joy shines through, and even when there is a difference in opinion, it's friendly banter and a lot of deep dives, exactly like talking with fellow Star Wars fans in real life. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Melanie. And as a thank you, uh, send me an email or um, DM me on Twitter, um, with your your address, and I will be getting a special little prize out to you um, here as soon as, I guess, really as soon as you get it to me, because I'm on summer break. I can do whatever the hell I want. It's great. <laughs> Whenever you want to do it. But exactly. really, thank you, Melanie. We really do appreciate the support, and I'm happy that uh, between all of us here at Clashing Sabres, when we do argue and bicker, it seems to be clear that we do it with an immense amount of love. Um, and certainly we hope that anyone out there has people that they can have those conversations with too. When it's fun, you disagree, but you can still do it lovingly. And if you don't have those people, join us on Facebook where we have these fights virtually. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Um, since we're just going to go ahead and keep tooting our horn, I guess that's what this episode is going to be about. We're just, you know what? Forget the topic. <laughs> Let's talk about us. No, um, but we also got a longest episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> Did they go longer than Endgame? Yes, it was epic. <laughs> um, so we, we got an email that I wanted to read and this one actually has a question. Um, so it's not just... Uh, tooting our horn um but matthew klein said uh sent this he said dear clashing sabers but really brandon and Lindsay, which is apropos since it's just us um he said he just started listening to the podcast he's a uh, 36 years old uh, hopefully he doesn't mind me saying that um and has been a massive star wars fan before he even had a choice um so 
He says his life has been molded by the lessons and themes of the stories. Um, I keep several key sayings on post-it notes on my computer monitor at work to keep my le- head level in high-stress moments. I actually do that, too. The the um, I'm one with the force. The force is with me. The little prayer that Chirrut does. Yeah. I totally do that in stressful situations. Um, and he talks about enjoying the uh, the enjoyable insight of the top three bottom threes and and doing rewatches uh along with us so we're looking forward to getting oh we're getting into return of the jedi pretty soon oh i'm so excited uh that's my favorite everybody you Uh, guys can't see but i'm rubbing my hands together (laughs) (laughs) dubiously so finally, he goes to uh, his, his question. He says, I just finished Master and Apprentice, and all I can say is, wow. Now I'm fully hooked on reading as much as I can between now and December for Episode 9. You are going to have so much to read, dude. It's ridiculous. Um, the only hole in my viewing resume is Rebels. Get your life together. Matthew, seriously, go watch Rebels. Um, he's a, he, <laughs> you and Drew can talk about it now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he's really excited to watch the series, but may hold out till Disney Plus. That's a terrible decision. Um, you should definitely go watch Rebels right now. Um, I say that with love. Um, he he doesn't want to be spoiled, so we will try to keep that to uh, a minimum. But he's asking for what advice do you have for reading or viewing in appropriate order? Um, should he try to follow the canon timeline or uh or go about it some other way? And let's uh just to kind of add to the challenge here let's say what are the things and the order he should watch before uh episode nine comes out in december so that's like six months he's got six months he's going to read all the new stuff and he can read other things and he also is a, a grown man who has a life and a job what does he hit what do you think Lindsay? all right so i get asked this question a lot and i really and truly believe that there's no specific order to watch it in or read it in, we'll say. And there's there's a few books that I think are absolutely crucial um, and some that are a little skippable. But to me, the golden answer is always whatever interests you about Star Wars, go with that first. So if you are like Brandon and I, where you love learning about the Force and the religious and the mystical aspects of it, and seeing the Jedi or maybe the Code of the Sith, then stick with books like that. If you're someone, though, who really likes the Rebels and the Empire and finding out more about those everyday people, then go with something like Lost Stars or go with something like New Dawn. If it's something like you really enjoy the space battles, then stick with Thrawn or go with something like Alphabet Squadron that just came out. So really just find whatever keeps you hooked and keeps you coming back for Star Wars and then find those books and start there. Yeah, I would definitely say, of course, I'm just giving you a hard time, Matthew, about Rebels, but uh, we can we can talk about Rebels uh, after you've watched it. But that's I, I legitimately do think that that's important because of the Force mythology. Um, that it brings up and the additions that it adds to uh, Mortis and Ahsoka and things like that. But if we're looking at literature, you got to go with the the Darth Vader Charles Charles Sewell run. I mean, I just finished a reread of that, or actually reread slash finally read Fortress of Vader with Moment and everything, and it literally blew my mind. And now I'm reading other comics, and I'm just like, this is just not... 
it's okay, but it's not, <laughs> you know, the bar is set really high now. So I think with what we're going to be dealing with Kylo Ren in uh, Rise of Skywalker and the fact that it's the end of the Skywalker saga. Forgive me. I feel it again. I would really say check out the Last Jedi novelization. Um, I'm looking forward to revisiting that to get a little more perspective into um, going into Episode Nine. The other, the other big hitters, I would say maybe if you haven't, go back and read Revenge of the Sith um, by Matthew Stover. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of connections between um, Revenge of the Sith and that, and then. The other one I would say would be Leia, Princess of Alderaan, um, just because. See, I would actually say instead of Leia, Princess of Alderaan, I would say Bloodline would be more important for right before episode nine. Yeah. Just because I think there's going to be more tie-ins. I'm not saying Bloodline is better or worse than Princess of Alderaan. I personally enjoy Bloodline more, but that is nothing more than personal opinion. But I think just in terms of what we're going to see having more direct connections to Episode Nine, I think Bloodline, um, obviously The Last Jedi novelization, as much as I don't like saying it, I do think um, the Aftermath trilogy is going to come in pretty crucial. And then, of mm. course, Force Collector. Um, and then we're starting to, as of last week, starting to get the Age of the Resistance comics as well. I would say if you're going to read the Aftermath trilogy, just go and read the interludes. I don't think anything in the actual story itself is going to matter. I guess my argument for Blo- or excuse me for, for Leia over Bloodline, and of course they're both Claudia Gray, so just, I don't know, read them both. Um, but if we're, if we're duking it out here, I would say Leia would be more important because you get more of that relationship between her and her parents which we could see parallels of that between her and Kylo. Um, especially the, the, the strain that she feels, um, the misunderstanding that she feels uh, with her parents in that book, um, I think could be something that we see connections with in, in Rise of Skywalker with Ben. Oh, that'd be interesting. I would actually also say anyone who doesn't absolutely love Holdo in The Last Jedi should go back and read Princess of Alderaan because that was so important for her character and really cool to see that relationship and how it started as just teenage girls and what they meant to each other. I think I can't imagine connecting with Holdo the way I did without having read Princess of Alderaan. Yeah, I I still like Holdo, um, but it does still kind of grind my gears a little bit that we didn't get 
I didn't want the exact same thing, obviously, because it's 40 years later, but I would have liked a little bit of that Leia Princess of Alderaan flair. Just once or twice, you know, a little... I think the heart's still there, but I kind of like the the goofiness of Luna Lovegood. She's my favorite character in Harry Potter, so I'm kind of biased there. Um, I think the heart is the same. I think she still doesn't take crap from anybody, as we see um, in both of them, and she's going to do whatever she thinks is right. So I think there's that connection, but that's a... That's a whole nother episode. I think, yeah, I think that's going to have to be an episode one yeah, night. Though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, noted. We're going to talk Haldo and why she is awesome. Um, also, here's a real question. And, and I'm terrible for forgetting her name. But did Haldo's purple hair convince the women's soccer player uh Megan Rapino. Yes. I'm gonna go with yes. Megan Hard yes. Right? Okay. All right. Um, you know what's really funny? I don't think I ever told you this, but my twin sister is to the women's national team the way we are about Star Wars. And I mean she can tell you not just the names, positions, and entire history of every player. I'm telling you, she can tell you the name of every single physical therapist on the team, <laughs> the doctor, everyone. And she, one time she actually follows them around the country to watch their games. So one time she was coming back from watching them from the weekend. Um, you know, we live in New York. She flew down to Nashville for a night just to go to their game. And on the way back up the next morning, she looks up in the security line and right in front of her, who's there, but Tobin Heath and Alex Morgan, and oh she turns around, and there's Christian Press and Megan Rapino and everyone. So she's sending me all the pictures with every single person on the team. That would be like us walking in, and it's like Harrison and Mark and Carrie. and It just, really would be. It re- she, and you can just tell in her face. I have to show you the pictures. They're the funniest thing. You can tell in her face she's so excited and thrown off. And then, of course, she starts taking pictures with the doctors on the team and expects me to know who they are. But watching her, you know, like you said, we're recording at a different time. So watching her yesterday get to uh, – you know, experience the game. She she refused to let anybody watch it with her, as she did for the last World Cup. But she took some videos of her reactions and things like that. So getting to watch her watch um, the woman bring home the cup yet again was amazing. And just want to give a big, big shout out to anyone who was supporting that team all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. I used to be really superstitious when it came to sports. When I was like... 13 or so yeah 2003 san antonio spurs nba finals um (laughs) i accidentally put my jersey on backwards the first game and we never trailed or something like that so i never turned it around i wore my shorts backwards because that's what tim duncan did in practice um and then at one point it was like game six when which would be the one where we won the series i'm upstairs watching it and my sister walks in the room right when Steven Jackson hits a three-pointer to give us the lead that would, in the end, be the lead that won us the game. And I literally trapped her in the room. No. That's a good luck charm. Yes. I li- you don't get to leave. No, not during commercial breaks. No, no. She had to sit there for 
an hour and a half. We like trapped her, my brother and I. Oh, the worst is it seemed to work. It <laughs> did. It did. It was very validating for me. So I'm just saying, I, I get it. I get it. All right. So we are going to be talking um, about cave scenes tonight. And of course, the most famous cave scene in all of Star Wars is the cave on Dagobah. And our good friend Bill, who, by the way, how great was Bill on the last episode? Oh, such a pro. Do you you know how hard it was for me to keep up with the three of them? Bill and Eve and Mark? But you did. You hung in there. I really didn't. I was just the, I was the ride along. I was just, that was a great show, though. It was a lot of fun. They were fun to talk to. Um, yeah. But he... he uh, super shout out to him because, again, I'm a terrible human being. Um, I forgot to tell him we were recording early, so I didn't get him the uh, show topic until last night at like 9 o'clock. And by this morning at 7, he had this to me. So I couldn't believe it. He's, he's a champ. He's, he's a champ. So, so we're going to be talking... Um, Luke's training on Dagobah and looking at the the different characters uh, to start out with. And who would you think would, would you would have in terms of characters? Who who has the most toys? Okay. Well, I'm trying to think of who the options would be. Well, it would have to be Luke. I'll, I'll, and then I'll give you the Yoda options. and Vader. Well, okay. the options are at the X-Wing fighter, Obi-Wan, Darth Vader, Yoda's hut, R2, Luke, and Yoda. Okay, so who has the most? I would say Luke. You would be wrong. You would be wrong. Tell me it's Yoda. It's Yoda. Okay, so I'll tell you this. Yoda has 33. Okay? Wow. 33 figures. There's, of course, the variants that came, um, like he points out that the, the original... Um, Yoda, there was two versions, one with an orange snake and one with a brown. So there's variants like that, of course. Yoda had 33. Okay. Wow. Okay. So taking that into... That's amazing. Taking that into consideration, how many did Luke have? Ooh. All right. Luke had... I'll say 27. You would be wrong shocking how many 11 no 11 no what get out of here no so okay i'm gonna do quick math real quick 21 27 okay here's what you're not gonna believe let me do this math again because i'm a a reading teacher and i want to make sure i'm right double check it that's double check your show us work carry the one okay i did have to carry the one okay Everybody else, X-Wing, Obi-Wan, Darth Vader, Yoda, R2, Luke. 31 total. No, But Yoda had 33 on his own? Yes. That's wild to me. Isn't that mind-blowing? Yeah, it's not like he had any big costume change. No, it's got, I mean, there's got to be like... I'm just thinking backpack variants and the and one that comes in like with the, the playset... Uh, yeah. different snakes, maybe different sticks, maybe one that comes with the the light that he steals. It's crazy. Unreal. I'm, Bill, you mastermind. Okay. This is this is the one that will really blow your mind. Is the the toys by production era. 
And of course, we have the classic era, the Renaissance, the prequel era, and the Clone Wars and the story group era. You would think the most would be the classic era, right? Yeah. No, you no, you can't possibly tell me it's not. It's not. No way. Here's the thing that's really going to blow your mind. It's the least. No way. Yes. It is the least. Now, you have four for the classic era. You have 27 for the story group era. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. But you know what? I wonder how many of those, and I'm not a Lego aficionado by any means, I wonder if Lego was the one to really ramp up production in the story group era. See, that's what I was thinking too, because when we go to the next one, it's number of toys by type. And of course, action figures are your number one. It always is. But the Legos were number two. Um and I feel like that's kind of been the trend that we've had because we've talked about this where like plushes are a lot lower than I thought they would be, particularly for characters like um, Yoda or Chewbacca. Um, yeah, so I was Lego has to, Yeah, Lego has to be accounting for a lot of these variants that are happening because, I mean, except for the Clone Wars era, but you didn't really go to Dagobah until Lost Mission, so that doesn't really count. It increases from four in the classic era to five in the Renaissance, 22 in the prequels to 27 in the story group. It's got to be Lego stuff. Wow. And such a drastic jump. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because everybody's talking about uh, Disney not making as many toys, but I mean. We've seen week over week. That's not true. It's the story. You know, I think I really think it's it's not so much that. They're making less toys, obviously, as we know. Thank you again, Bill. Um, it's it's the different kind of toys. You know, people our age and people older, when we think Star Wars toys, I think our mind goes right to the classic five point of a- point of five point of action action figures and different play sets, things like that. Whereas now it's more Legos and it's more Funkos and it's it's a little bit less about just the classic action figure and it's just evolved. Well, and I also I, I think the perception that they're making less comes from the fact that they're making I do think they're making less um in terms of different types of characters, you know, um, in the the classic era and even in like the the Renaissance when you had Power of the Force and things like that, you're getting every you're getting versions on versions of every character in the Cantina, and that's not the same for Force Awakens. I mean, we didn't get ninety percent of the characters that were in that Cantina in Maz's bar, um, but there's a lot of Kylo Rens out there. There's a lot of Rays, so they're really. I, I think because play has changed, you know, kids aren't mm-hmm. playing with action figures as much anymore. They're they're more collectors, and if they do, they're they're not telling as big of stories as maybe we did when we were trying when when we were trying to grow up. I'm still trying to grow up. When we were growing up, um, you know, it was a lot more action figures, play sets. Now there's these open world games. There's things like Battlefront. There's things like the the Lego games that are coming out that give you a little more freedom to kind of tell your own story. 
and and I just think it's changing how how kids play, um, which is a factor in in the production of less different ti- different characters and things like that. That's a really good point. That's true. Yeah. So for better or worse, I mean. I still have at least two kids a year that come bring me some random Star Wars toy, and I'm like, I don't know who you are, but thank you. <laughs> That's it happens, so cute. It happens all the time. It's great. Um, all right. So with that in mind, we are going to plot our navigational course and crash land on to Dagobah and talk about some cave scenes right after this. Yes, run! Yes, Jedi strength flows from the Force but beware of the dark side. Anger, fear, aggression. The dark side of the Force are they. Easily they flow. Quick to join you in a fight. If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Consume you at will. As it did, Obi-Wan's apprentice. Vader. Is the dark side stronger? No. 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 But the busier, more seductive. But how am I to know the good side from the bad? You will know when you are calm, at peace, passive. A Jedi uses the force for knowledge and defense. Never attack. But tell me why I can't... No, no, there is no why. Nothing more will I teach you today. Clear your mind of questions. We are back, and we are talking about cave scenes in the Star Wars saga. We, of course, know from 1980 on, caves have been an important part of the Star Wars saga, and we're going to talk about them um, across the movies. There, of course, is some in Clone Wars and some in Rebels, and we may come back and visit those at another time, but just for for the sake of time, we wanted to stick with the, the films themselves. Um, and, and we'll pull in ancillary material as it supports those. But I want to start this conversation, Lindsay, with kind of looking at how are we going to, to be defining caves in this discussion? So to you, what is a cave? So when we first talked about doing this episode, and it's been quite a while that you've been threatening us with this, so I'm happy we're finally getting to it. And it seemed like such a daunting task because of that question. So when you first brought up this idea of doing these caves and throwing out some different quote-unquote cave scenes, what was difficult for me is that when I think of caves in any type of literature or storytelling or just talking about the significance of them to humanity, my mind always goes to Plato's cave. Oh, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. I mean, we we have to. We absolutely have to. But for me, that always signified being kept in the dark about something. 
and being very misled about what was going on around you. And it was only when you came out of that cave that you were able to see the world for what it really was. And you're able to see that all these pictures you were shown were nothing more than shadows. But what was hard is when I sat down and I was trying to look at how that translated to Star Wars, I was really struggling because it wasn't so much that what these characters saw in their respective caves were the shadows. It was almost like the cave was the exit point itself, if that makes sense. So it was like they had to go into the cave to evolve and then come out. Whereas in Plato's story, you're being kept in the cave your entire life. So I started doing a little bit more background and research on different caves in storytelling And the one I actually kept coming back to that I'm not as familiar as I was, you know, back in high school, what, 10 plus years ago when I was doing this. Make sure you Um, carry the one there. (laughs) I count on my hands real quick. (laughs) But I vaguely remember um, Beowulf had a great. I don't want to say scene, but a great aspect of that story was the cave there. And there's so many different parts of why that cave is important in that story. But really, it is the fact that, one, the hero goes in and believes that messages are being sent in that cave, and they just can't decipher it. So they feel like they need to really go in and dive into that cave and start to understand everything being shown to them and try and connect with the cave dwellers there just so that this way Beowulf can um, get closer to, I believe it's his mother, and he can start to understand the messages that are being sent to him and go out and then after that be the hero that everyone needs him to be. Yeah, that's that's really good because to me, I think like we say, oh, we're going to talk about cave scenes and you're like, okay, do you have Dagobah and the mirror cave? What else do you have? But I think that they can definitely be metaphorical and I think what they do is they show us the darkest fears that we have and possibly the darkest versions of ourself. Um, I always, I always say that we're the best at lying to ourselves um, because, you know, most of the time when we tell a lie, the other person knows you're telling a lie, but you lie to yourself to convince yourself that you convince them. And Hmm. it's this vicious cycle that, that really the dark side keeps you in. And that's a good point that like, you do have to go in there to learn and evolve. It's almost like a, a cocoon, you know, um, going into that darkness and, and the caterpillar literally like turns to mush uh, and, and reforms as the butterfly. I want to go back to the allegory of the cave, um, which is from Plato in in the Republic, um, not the Galactic Republic, uh, a book. <laughs> and and just kind of lay out how that works because I think it's going to be foundational and I think it does to some extent fit in with what you were saying in Beowulf so basically it comes down excuse me it comes down to this you're in or there's a group of people in a cave they're chained to a cave there's a flame to the rear and they're facing the back of the cave they can't move so all they can see is the shadows and like you, you mentioned these shadows become their reality they give them names but then once they're freed, they have to actually learn what caused the shadows and how to assimilate to a reality that is 
contrary to what they've known forever, right? So they they call it's the old um, this is not a cigar picture of a cigar, you know, um, kind of thing. Is you place these labels on things, and then when it's not really what you wanted, you have to figure out a way to handle that. And do they handle it well? Do they not? Um, and I think that's kind of the same thing that happens for Beowulf is having to go into that cave and handle things to be able to to achieve his goal. Um, and for me, I really do think that the cave shows us our our shadows, our darkest selves. Um, but I also think it's important that shadows only appear when the sun is out, when the light is out. So really those shadows are our own self-doubts, our own inner turmoils. Um, and they're opened once we, we shine that light on to them. You know, I think a lot of people would identify with this, like your greatest fear is not somebody coming in and, and shooting you or uh, something tragic like that. That's not like usually our biggest fear. Our biggest fear is like, oh my God, what if I pee my pants during this presentation? You know, like it, it's something, what if What if they actually don't love me? Um, what if I'm actually a terrible person? Those are, are the fears that we really deal with and those are what our characters have to go into the caves to handle. That's a really unique take on it especially when you're talking about how for each one of these characters and i know we're going to dive into the cave scenes that we kind of picked um but each one definitely has their own shadows that they're putting into their own cave you know yoda says it best in that very first cave scene that we say when luke says what's in there and he says only that which you take with you and they really did, each one of the characters we're about to discuss, kind of make their own cave and have to come out victorious, some one in particular more than the rest. Yeah, and that's why I think it's important to keep in mind that these are, are metaphorical to some extent, which is true for our first one, which is Attack of the Clones. It's Anakin at the Tusken Raider camp. Um, because anakin's deepest fear during attack of the clones is that he won't be able to to keep his promise to his mother to free her and visually of course you know george was always talking about these are silent movies you know you can you can tell what's going on just with the picture and as we watch him go out towards the tuscan camp it gets progressively darker as it would if you were to go deeper in a cave right so the tent itself where he finds his mother is that deepest part of the cave, which is where the worst things happen, where the worst thing for Anakin happens, which is is the death of his mother. And if we're looking at at this in like a, a Campbellian hero's journey um, perspective, this would be that belly of the beast moment, the the death and rebirth, because this is the moment when Anakin, when sweet little Annie dies, and r the real Darth Vader, the seeds of Darth Vader are planted. You know. Um, <sighs> So here's where you and I disagree. All right. And it's it's not that anything you just said is untrue or invalid. Where we disagree is really at the core of what Anakin's cave scene is. Because to me, his cave scenes are actually a little bit earlier than that, where it's um when he's on Naboo and maybe even as early as Coruscant, but when he starts having these nightmares about his mother... And he's getting these messages that we see now for the first time in Master and Apprentice. And it's because he opened himself up 
to the force. And by doing so, he's now vulnerable and he's showing his fears and he's casting his shadows and he really can enter into this new plane where these visions are more than dreams. They're warnings. And he's trying to decipher these warnings. And if we're talking about the hero's journey, it might not so much be the belly of the beast moment, but it is that moment where he has the option to cross back into the world he knows. And part of most hero journeys, and we'll say overtly successful hero journeys, are that they usually decide, I'm not going to cross back. I'm not going to go back to the common world, and I'm not going to go back to everything that I left. Whereas Anakin goes into the cave, being his dreams and these visions, and he fails. He does go back. But I think he fails. The failure manifests itself after his mother's death. Right? Like, I see... see so here's here's where I'm coming from because if if we're looking at this like hero's journey style the the darkest moment for Luke is the I am your father moment because what he's always wanted is his father and he has him right in front of him and it's the worst thing it could possibly be in the in the galaxy right Anakin has everything he wants which is to see his mother again and it's the worst possible version of that which is she's dying in his arms to me, that is that moment and, and him actually exiting the the tent and going he he goes in a savior, right? He goes into the tent to save his mother. He comes out a killer. His hmm. first his first real massacre. I think the the dreams would be what get him into the cave, but I don't know if they're necessarily the cave itself. I think if you wanted to look at it from that way, you would have to look at it across both Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith to say the dreams he has about his mother and Padme, and then that is what leads him to Palpatine, which is the the thing he wants, but it's the worst version of it. That makes sense. All right. That... You you made me come around. You made me see the light. I, just, I think you're right. It's it's his entry point into the cave. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think because like Beowulf doesn't just walk up and be like, "Hey, look at this nice, cool cave. I think I'll go in here." Right? Like Ray doesn't just walk into the mirror cave because like, "Hmm, I wonder what's in this big dark hole." Um, you you've got to have that motivating factor. So I I definitely think they go hand in hand. Um, I think without Without those dreams, he doesn't go to his mother um, because it's like it's the the uh, Schrodinger's cat phenomenon, you know, like, well, if I don't go see if my mother's alive, then she could be alive. But once those dreams happen, he knows what those mean. And having read the the Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith novels recently, Anakin points out in Revenge of the Sith that my dreams are not normal dreams. My dreams come true, um, which is not something that's pointed out directly as blatantly in the movies. It's alluded to, but he blatantly says, my dreams come true. I will save you, Padme. So, um, yeah, I just think it's, a, it's that's, the mo- that's the point of no return, right? That you were talking about where he can cross back into his world. 
just as a, as a visual, he could go back out the hole that he came in. You know, he could he could not go through the front door of that tent and slaughter the men and the women and the children and still, I mean, probably get away with it, you know, um, and, and go back to, to being Anakin and not lose control like that. And what I like, too, is now that you have convinced me that, yes, the Tusken Radar tent is the actual cave scene for Anakin is there's even more parallels now to each cave and the cave in Beowulf. You know, in um, Dagobah, it's located beneath the swamp, just like in Beowulf. In The Last Jedi, that mirror cave, um, you could say pretty easily at this point that it represents a lot of heritage, whether it's Rey's heritage or even the fact that it's on Octu and it's tied so closely to the heritage of the Jedi Order. Uh, in Beowulf, the cave is very representative of the different heritage. In the Tusken Raider camp, though, it really does symbolize, just like in Beowulf, the fact that you're going into this alien world and you're putting yourself in with all of these outcasts. And how are you going to treat these outcasts on your way out of the cave? Well, and I think on top of that, you're talking about heritage. He goes in there to save his mother, right? Which is, of course, his heritage. But when he comes out, he passes that heritage to Palpatine because he tells Padme and he tells Palpatine about what happened. And he gives the devil a foothold there, you know, um, into him taking up the lineage of the Sith. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a much more important scene than it gets credit for because of, of course, the memes and the the men. I was going to say it gets it gets overshadowed by the scene that follows it. Yeah. But that's that's still important when we're now comparing it to Plato's cave, because now he, like you said, he's able to change how he labels things, and he realizes things aren't always so cut and dry, and he's not the perfect Jedi that he's being trained to be, and he really needs to take a step back. And say, okay, I was living in this era where I was just looking at the shadows. Now I need to figure out what those shadows are. And now I really need to come to terms with who I am and what I'm capable of doing. Oh, see, I would disagree with you there. I think he clings to the shadows even more. I feel Why? Because, one, you have Palpatine, dark side shadows. We're going to get to that more when we get to the second Death Star. Um, but also Padme, I look at her and and this is not a knock on the character i think this is just a metaphorical thing she's a shadow of shmi at least to anakin you know he he's obsessed with saving her because he couldn't save his mother um i don't if if he doesn't fail there in the cave in the tuscan raider camp revenge of the sith doesn't happen um and, and you have a totally different story i think you you have him breaking down there say he he recognizes that he's clinging to the shadows but i don't think he actually turns around and and logically goes well this is what i was doing wrong he goes and he gets to attach to ahsoka he 
we see what happens on Zygeria um, with the slavers um, and his reactions there. And even, I mean, even things like I'm reading Approaching Storm right now, which is not great and it's not canon either, but even the can- characterization of Anakin there is he's a fight first, ask questions later kind of person. Um, and this is even before Attack of the Clones. So I, I think he gets turned up to 11 there um, in terms of like, he's just going to kill and then figure out the consequences later. I almost feel like we need to look at it two different ways. One is just that, what he actually does and his actions and everything we know he follows up with later on. But then number two are his words. And it goes back to what you said before, which is it can be really easy to convince yourself of certain things. And he seems like that's what he's trying to do. When he sits there and he's saying, I'm a Jedi, I know I'm better than this. It's like he really does think he stepped out of that cave and now he sees those shadows and he's going to try and step it up. He really does seem like he's going to try and accept all of this and he's going to try and do things a little differently. But then, like you said, we see everything after that. He doesn't necessarily do that. He's not capable of it, whether he tries or not. But he has it in his mind that he's trying. And it's that it's that point of no return, right? Like. And, and this is important when you look at the, the, the hero's journey of Anakin and Luke side by side. This moment when his mother dies and, and everything he thought he wanted falls apart, he goes out and kills, right? His actions are of the dark side, you know? Um, like you're saying, like, his words are great, you know, but his actions are dark side very much like luke in the beginning of return of the jedi because of what happened at cloud city because of the i am your father moment he luke had everything he wanted in front of him and it was the most terrible version of it you could possibly imagine and instead of joining that and accepting and taking everything he wanted and more really oh, I get a dad and the whole galaxy? He literally commits suicide. He doesn't, he doesn't die, okay? But he jumps to his death. He has no way of knowing what's going to happen to him. He's got one arm. He's beaten and bloodied. Nobody to come rescue him, even on the weather vane. But I think the difference is Luke's actions are of self-sacrifice, Whereas Anakin's actions are of self-importance. Hmm. You know, but because... Yeah, and it's it's a crucial difference and it can be so hard to spot for people who are not us as the audience. And it's, it's one of the great, you know, great signs of why George Lucas and the story group and everyone involved in this, they're such great storytellers. Whether no matter what you think about George Lucas and his way he writes dialogue, he's a great storyteller because he's able to find that exact balance, which if you are not 100% invested as the audience member, you're never going to see those details. And when we think about in-universe and in-galaxy, no one else around them necessarily sees those differences as well. You know, Padme, Ahsoka, they're all too close to realize that 
that's why Anakin acts the way he does. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it, it, it's cheesy to say it, but it's a certain point of view, you know? Like, I think one of Obi-Wan's greatest failures was not connecting more with Anakin about Satine. Um, I think he missed a, a big chance there um, because his point of view was skewed. And that's a lot of of the prequels, right? Is like, in essence, the whole galaxy is walking itself into a cave because they're all more concerned with their own shadows and their own realities that they just walk right into literally the depths of hell. So let's, though, while we're talking about the similarities and literally walking into the depths of hell, let's move on to Luke's cave scene. Yes. You know, I think this is the most indisputable cave scene of them all. Um, So what are your thoughts on Luke's cave scene? Not so much him as a character, not his hero journey, just this one part. I hate that you limit me like this. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, I think... Just a starting point. Just a starting point. I think this is... This one, to me, is a lot more cut and dry, obviously, because he is walking into a cave. Um, He sees at at that time what his greatest fear is. Um, which is that he has the potential for darkness because before this we have him asking Yoda if the the dark side is m- more powerful, of course. Um, so there is that, that reverent fear of it. And my thing with this is I don't think the cave itself was a failure. You think you think it's everything after that? I think yeah. I think it's yeah. what he did once he comes out of the cave. I think if anything in the cave is a failure, it's that he brought his weapons with him. But I don't think he learns the lesson of throwing your weapons away if he doesn't go in there intending to be a great warrior. You know, like it, it's one of those things. Yoda's already told him wars not make one great, but until you actually get to that point you where you have to actually make that choice which goes back to anakin you know you you don't know um yeah to me this it's just cut and dry this one it's cut and dry but it's still interesting you know one of the the key differences i want to point out when you're talking about he doesn't necessarily learn his lesson this cave scene is also the one that we can assume the character has the least, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the least insight, the least amount of clarity. Because Anakin's cave scene, he's very aware of what's going on. He knows where he is, he knows who he's with, and he knows what he's capable of doing. Ray's cave scene. Unless something happens in episode nine that changes my mind on this, I do think she herself knows who her parents are and she understands Luke told her, you know, that is a dark side nexus. That's where the power of the dark side is being drawn to. And she knows what's happening when she goes into that cave. Whereas Luke, he not only doesn't have the context of what a dark side nexus is and what exactly he's going into, but he doesn't have any context for the vision itself. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Looking back on it, of course, we understand 
what that vision was. When he sees his own face in the mask, we now know what it is. At the time, he didn't. How could he possibly sit there and interpret what he saw? So, yes, it is very cut and dry, again, to us as the audience, but it is the least cut and dry to the character it's happening to. Well, and that would make sense as to why from that moment when he walks out till the end of Return of the Jedi, we see him sliding closer and closer to the dark side is he doesn't have that context. And, you know, what's interesting is he gets a vision after that, right? Which is what causes him to to run away that's interesting i hadn't thought about this but but anakin gets his visions going into the cave luke gets his visions after coming out of the cave it's a very hmm. ring theory i love the ring theory i love the ring theory so another much. episode um oh god another series um, yeah <laughs> so yeah it's 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 interesting that both of them coming out of the cave come out more almost said more closer i'm a reading teacher get your life together they come together they come closer to the dark side than when they went in um which i don't know if that's necessarily true for characters like ray or even the luke that we're going to talk about in return of the jedi um yeah that's interesting how the perspective affects it because he he leaves so soon after that and and we don't really see him discussing what he saw with Yoda. No, and you you got to wonder too if Yoda really knows, you know, and Oh, Yoda knows. I don't know. It's just so cool to me that everything right now is such a big mystery and always has been in terms of Yoda and his time period on Dagobah. We get a little bit of it in from a certain point of view, but that's about it. But what exactly does he know and understand of what's going on in that cave. Um, it's my understanding that, and and I don't know where I read this in the new canon, but at least in Legends growing up, he chose to go to Dagobah because the dark side energy that the trees around him emitted gave him the perfect cover. So yes, it weakened him and he didn't necessarily have as much control as he probably would have at some place like a Jedi temple. It still gave him a little bit of power, but mostly it gave him protection. But we can assume that everything in those 20 years, it was like Yoda versus the Dagobah Swamp in this cave. And how much did Yoda truly understand and how much was he willing to let himself open up to? Um, I would love, 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 love nothing more than to do some kind of side-by-side comparison of what Yoda was actually doing on Dagobah and put it next to Dark Disciple and what um, Quinlan Voss was able to do in the Night Sisters cave in Dathomir. Oh, yeah. Well, I know in Clone Wars in the season six, when he goes to Dagobah, Qui-Gon points out that it's strong in the Force. And I, I remember somewhere... I don't know if I if I read it or heard it on a podcast, but basically it was put out there that a planet like that would have certain spots that are light side and certain spots that are dark side, but overall would just be force energy. And in the same way that you were kind of saying, he gets masked by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
if he did he go into the cave and if he went into the cave what did it show him and does that allow him to see what luke sees it's a very world between worlds kind of thing which we're gonna do we got this is like the show of show ideas we've got to do a discussion on world between worlds because I, I, <laughs> you're writing these down right <laughs> yes i got this okay. um World Between Worlds, I think, is not just what we see in Rebels. I think, to some extent, a place like the Dagobah Cave could be a version of the World Between Worlds. It's that thing outside of time and space. It shows you something that you need to see. It's almost like the Force welcome you into its house, you know? And sure, it's the dark side on Dagobah, in that cave, but that's a part of you. Vader is a part of Luke. He's a Skywalker. That's part of his lineage. You know, that's that's something he can't avoid. That's something Kylo can't avoid. Um, it's, interest, this, it's interesting how one that's so simple like this could be... It, it's so integral that it influences all the other ones that we see. Well, yeah, but... There's so many different components to this one in particular. There's one, Luke, of course, and everything, like Yoda says, everything he's bringing in with him and his own character flaws and his own character strengths. Two, there's the location itself, Dagobah, Dark Side Nexus. And then three, there's the partial training. So he ha- obviously hasn't had as much training as Anakin, and he's had more training than Ray. So he's like that perfect middle ground to really test out what can be done in these caves and how it affects their people at not so much different, um, I don't know, force sensitivity, but at just different training points and different connection points in the force. Yeah, and I think on that line, the the lesson that it teaches him, he goes in there... And he draws his weapon first when he sees Vader. Hmm. And then he goes to Cloud City and he draws his weapon first. He goes into Jabba's hut and he strikes first. He He's falling into that, the Jedi as a warrior culture that it damned, uh, I almost said Ben, because it kind of did, but it, it damned Anakin, you know? Um, and his lack of training there, like you're pointing out is important because I think one of the big differences between Ray and Luke and why it's ridiculous to call Ray a Mary Sue is because, well, one, because people don't know what a Mary Sue is, but that's besides the point. It's because she has the life experience that he doesn't have. So she's going into her cave with a lot more of a background than Luke is which is going to color how they understand the experience. To him, just like to Anakin, things are very black and white. Vader is evil. I must kill him. But what he sees in there shatters that for him, and he realizes that he could be that same evil. He later finds out why he could be that same evil, and it leads him closer to the dark side. It's interesting that him and and Anakin are so paralleled in this particular aspect. It, it, uh, I don't even know if it's so much 
paralleled. It's a good amount of mirroring, really. Mirror. Yeah, that's what I'm more. Yeah, more, yeah. more mirroring. There's there's those reflections there that knowing George Lucas were very intentional. Oh yeah. But moving on to to what I've alluded to before, this is the other metaphorical cave that I wanted to touch on today because I think it's really important and it's the Death Star too. This one is all right. So I'm I'm just gonna lay this out. I think this one is as close to the allegory of the cave as we get in Star Wars because Luke walks into the cave, which is the throne room, which, mind you at one point was supposed to be underground on a planet like Mustafar, so it would have literally been a cave. He has Vader a step behind him and the royal guards in the rear. They're the flames, and the shadow they present is the the Empire, which is the Emperor. So then it's the shadow that frees him from his binders, shadow being the Emperor. Um, I'm going to keep calling him the shadow for now. He And that becomes the reality that starts to take Luke down the dark path, the shadow itself literally says, in time you will call me master. So the shadow will become the reality. It'll become what he thought was real because what he thought was real before going into that cave, that the rebels had the plans of the second Death Star and that everything was going to be okay, is not what happens. So in a figurative way, Palpatine is saying that what Luke knows about the Force is a lie and that the shadow will become his his reality, right? So then you have the Emperor now becoming the flame as he stands behind Luke, um, and the light is what's happening in space. So this would be that moment where Luke's looking out the window right before he he draws his lightsaber, right? And the, the failure of the rebels creates this image of Palpatine in a metaphorical sense. And it becomes Luke's new reality, and Luke strikes out against it, trying to kill it, but the darkness that is Vader stops him, and Luke has to fight his way out of the cave, just like he did on Dagobah. But the difference here is that he learns, and this is is critical, and this is in a in a way why, if we're looking at... In a, in a figurative sense, we could kind of see all of the the walk down into the cave in Dagobah to this moment at the end of Return of the Jedi as one big cave. Luke tries to fight his way out of it, but then finally heeds the, the advice that Yoda gave him going into that first cave, which is your weapons, you will not need them. And he becomes more of a Jedi than ever before because it's not his his strength that overcomes the darkness, but it's his faith, his love, and of course, the light side. Damn, homie. I mean, I so, sat and like, I watched one second of Return of the Jedi, pause, wrote notes. I, I went hard on this one because y'all know, I mean, if we're talking about my favorite scenes, this has always will be, I mean, it would take a lot for it to overcome this, but Yeah. I'm just taking it all in because, all right, so when we were first talking about this episode and you were laying out what you thought the cave scenes were and you said Death Star 2, I was like, how is he going to do that? How could he possibly connect that? And I was so ready to argue with you because to me that scene was always much more um, 
God, who's the guy in Greek mythology who goes into the underworld? Is that Orpheus? Um, yeah, I think so. Hercules does it at one point, too. Yeah. Well, one of them, whoever it was, to me, that was always a much closer representation to that scene, especially now understanding Anakin's story and understanding how he was trying to pull Padme back. So to be able to say Luke basically did what he did or was trying to do, Luke was able to go and not necessarily stop his father from dying, but he went into the underworld and he pulled him out from death. To me, that was what that scene was always about. But in comparison to these other cave scenes and this side-by-side analysis, yeah, I could absolutely see how you can easily make the argument that it is a cave scene and it is Luke's final step until obviously we uh, come to the sequel trilogy and we see what he became there. But it's, it's so crucial and it's such a big moment of his own hero's journey. And even though, yes, it's at the end of that original trilogy and it's towards the end and the climax of his story there, it by no means is actually the end. And it really is just his beginning of enlightenment. Well, and I, A, I don't think only one interpretation of the scene is valid. I think there's so many different ways you could interpret it. But if we look at it in terms of like the cave being this darkness, um, this struggle that we have to deal with the worst part of ourselves, that's the underworld. Right. So I think those go hand in hand. And I I love what you pointed out there about Anakin trying to bring Padme back um, because we see in the Vader comic that's like he's literally trying to do that. He creates this own his own cave into this other world to try to bring her her back and obviously can't. And it's when Luke goes into this cave, into the underworld and pulls the real Anakin back in a way Padme is able to, to live again because that love is there, you know, um, Luke very much being Padme's son. Um, and, and even more than that, you know, you have the legacy that lives on from them. It's, and, and I think if you look at like cheer, it says it in, uh, Rogue One, if you look to the Force, you will find me. And I think that's what Anakin finally learns there when he comes out of this cave that he's been in for two, three decades, you know, that literally is his helmet. Yeah. And like Chirot also says in Rogue One, you know, of his own making. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one thing, though, I do definitely want to point out that I really do love about your side-by-side comparison is the significance that the emperor plays in the cave and how he really is, you know, the shadows and he's the master and he's controlling everything up until a certain point. And he is that, that darkness that we see. I think his, his role in all of this, but especially this one particular cave scene is so crucial. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, he he is really that that shadow throughout, right? Like even going back to what I said earlier about Anakin coming out of that cave, who does he he trust after that? He trusts Palpatine and he trusts Padme. 
Hmm. So there's, he's always there to spread the lie. Ooh, you know what's really interesting? Okay. You've got Anakin coming out of his cave, and he trusts Palpatine and Padme. And then when you get to the second Death Star, you have Anakin and Palpatine, and you have Padme in the form of Luke. And he has to choose which direction to go, and he obviously chooses the other, I guess, exit out of the cave, if you will. Yeah, at that point, it's almost like the... You know, the cartoon with the hero and the hero, the (laughs) The devil and the angel sitting on the hero's shoulder. And which one does he listen to? And he finally gets it right. No time. That's wild, though. I really never thought of that scene as a cave scene. But now it's like it's so glaringly right there in your face the whole time. Of course it is. Well, let's go on to one that is absolutely a cave scene, and that's the mirror cave, because this is one that I kind of flip-flop depending on what day you talk to me on what my interpretation of it is. So I'm going to throw this one to you. What do you think's going on here in this mirror cave scene? So I definitely want to say what I don't think it is. Um, Ray is not a clone. No, right, is not a clone. Right, I just I I want to say that right now. I do not interpret that scene as Ray is a clone. Um, what I do interpret it as is she's lost in herself. You know, she is so many layers deep and layers buried that she kind of needs to climb out of her own skin in order to face that truth and face that light and come out of the cave itself um some different things though that i notice in her cave scene versus others that i believe at this point is more important than how we interpret that is the amount of control that she has in this scene you know whereas anakin goes in and he is so focused on this one task that when he goes into the tuscan tent he doesn't necessarily realize he's in this cave and he's opening himself up to something greater. Luke is warned by Yoda and he realizes, but that doesn't mean he's in any kind of control when he's there. You know, he fails immediately by lighting his, igniting his lightsaber. But Ray, she knows from her own accord what she's doing. She goes into that cave knowingly and she wants to open herself up to the dark side just a little bit. And she does. And she's able to control herself the entire time. And she is able, unlike Luke looking at his own face in the helmet, we get the sense that she's able to understand and interpret everything there. As it's happening, you know, she doesn't necessarily see these thousands of versions of herself and freak out. She sees it and thinks critically about it. And, you know, in the movie, at least she does that finger snap in the book. She just walks right by them. Um, But she's she in both versions just calmly understands and starts to test the limits a little bit. Until she gets to that wall and she thinks, okay, this is my chance. Now I need to face that truth. Now I need to figure out what these shadows actually are. And she's brave enough to ask it 
And what I'm interested in now is why doesn't the cave really want to show her? Well, I think the the cave is trying to teach her something, though, which is, you know, she has to rely on herself. And I like what you said, that she she goes in there to learn something, whereas... Luke and Anakin kind of go in there because there's the temptation to go there. There's like this calling, like the dark side is calling to them. Whereas for Ray, it's almost more like the dark side is there to inform her, you know? Uh, Yeah. It's like she can work with it. And that to me is also one of the big differences here. And I kind of teased you with this um, a little bit last night and today when we were talking about this, that I noticed one difference in the, novelization version of this scene. Um, and that is simply, you know, it, it could just be an element of the storytelling and the medium, but in the movie, when we see this, we start to get her voiceover. And right when we have that moment where the cave shows her just her own reflection, it then cuts to her conversation with Kylo Ren in the book though, we actually get to see her reaction when she sees her reflection and she literally just breaks down. It says she weeps, you know, she breaks down and she cries about what she's seen and she stands back up and thinks, I know who I need to talk to about this. And she goes to talk to Kylo Ren. And even though she weeps and she's sad, I think that next part is the biggest difference and why I fully expect that she's going to be more powerful than either Anakin or Luke. Cause in Anakin's cave scene, we have him leave in anger and he goes off on this incredible rage, which is so typical of him, but his cave scene ends in anger the way most of his story does. Whereas Luke's cave scene, he leaves and we get that sense of confusion and almost like he's, he's scared by what he's seen and he goes off and starts to act pretty hastily. Whereas Ray, even though she's sad, she seems to accept everything. And I think that acceptance is why she's going to be probably the most powerful Jedi slash not being called a Jedi that we've ever seen. Well, and when Luke and Anakin come out, like you pointed out, they're leaning more towards the dark side in terms of, their actions, whereas Ray goes and literally sits and has a conversation with the dark side, mm-hmm. you know, um, and to to an extent, I mean, if you wanted to even throw in the the throne room scene there in, uh, on Snoke's ship, you know, she goes, she faces the darkness, and she's able to take a shadow and bring it closer to the light in terms of, of Kylo. Hmm. It's interesting because I think to some extent, of course, we're not going to really be able to understand this scene or her vision in Force Awakens until after we have Rise of Skywalker. Right. But it is interesting that she comes out very fact-based, whereas Luke and Anakin came out very emotional. Um, Which, by the way, super ironic since people think that women are more emotional and guys are more factual, but whatever. Um, it's just interesting observation. It's to me, it, it, the, the story of the cave scene for her there is 
her realizing that it, it doesn't matter where she comes from. And really, it doesn't matter where she's going. It matters where she's at right then. So hmm. she has this desire to know her past, right? Which is all these clones uh, behind her. And she has this worry about what am I going to be in the future? Um, which is all the ones in front of her. But it's not until she gets to where she is right now, which, I mean, yes, it moves to the end in, in terms of what we see, but it's the quote-unquote real Ray that can show her what she needs to know, which is that she has to rely on herself. Um, and it goes to what what Yoda told Luke on Dagobah, which is your eyes are always on the horizon, never here. You know, you're not in the moment. Uh, that's the same thing that Qui-Gon starts the prequel trilogy with. Keep your concentration here and now where it belongs. And this is the same issue that we seem to have with Rey is her mind is never on where she is. She's looking at my family, where did I come from? Wait, my family's going to return. It's this push and pull between should I live in the past, should I live in the future? And it's like, no, you should live in the moment right now, which is the same kind of struggle that, that we see evolving with Kylo is he's got this lineage behind him. He's got this pull of Snoke telling him what he could be, and it's messing with who he is at the, at the time. Yeah, and... I mean, it's it's funny you talk about Kylo, too, and I talked about Kylo as well, because we haven't really seen him have any type of cave scene, necessarily. And the fact that he's tied so closely to Rey's, I just wonder if that's significant at all, um, whether you're into Raylo, Ben Demption. Um, but I do think that no matter what, those two characters are obviously Clyde tied so closely together. And what does it mean that he's not necessarily in her cave scene, but he's so crucial in her acceptance of it. But see, I think there is an argument to be made and mind you, I'm making this argument up as I go. So it could be totally off and rise of Skywalker could change this completely. But to some extent, I think the hut could be a cave. Because you have the flame there, and in, instead of, it, it's kind of a flip on the allegory of the cave. Instead of the flame being to their back, the flame is to their front, showing them their new reality, which is each other. And whether that's romantic or not, like, you can't deny these two are intertwined. They're two halves of the same protagonist. Um, I think that's something we need to revisit after Rise of Skywalker, but it could be that that's finally flipping it around and letting them see what the light has to show them from the start. Yeah. I'd be interested to, you know, once we do see rise of Skywalker and get the full understanding of this cave scene, if all of those clones are really their way of saying that she's not only her shadow, but she's also her own light. You know, it's like Ray really mm, is yeah. trapping herself in this, continuous cycle where she is just blocking the truth from herself and in doing so is just digging herself deeper and deeper and deeper into that misunderstanding. I was wrong. I'd never felt so alone. You're not alone. Neither are you.
it's going to be so great once we have Rise of Skywalker because we're going to have the whole trilogy, right? Which is part of the reason why the original trilogy works so well is because it all works together. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and I think we lose the perspective on that. And, and I mean, even the, the prequel trilogies, like if you had stopped at Attack of the Clones, like it's kind of lackluster. But once you throw in Revenge of the Sith, it ties in all the things that, that was were set up in the first two, um, which is, is the same thing that we're going to get here. And yes, they have a direction that they're going. Okay, everybody calm down. Um, yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be so good. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah, we need to ha- come back and have this discussion again in January after we go through the eight other ideas we threw out in the past hour. <laughs> January, February, March, April. It's all going to be Rise of Skywalker. Let's be- if it's anything close to The Last Jedi... It's going to keep us going for years to come. I don't think we're going to have any problems talking about things. Let's just put it that way. All right. So that's going to wrap up our conversation about caves for now. Um, And we want to hear your thoughts. So you can send us those thoughts, clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com. Send me a DM on Twitter. Um, Write a review. I'll actually remember to check it, maybe. Um, Eventually, I'll read it on the show. Uh, so that would be cool um, if I could actually do that on time, like an adult. Where else? Be better. <laughs> be, be better, Boylan. Uh, so yeah, Twitter at Clashing Sabers, Clashing Sabers Network at Gmail dot com. Text us or leave us a voicemail at eight three two nine six six zero zero seventy seven. And if you want to be really cool, you can come join our Facebook group, which is where Lindsay. Uh, does things also, and she's going to tell you about all the things that she does right now. Yeah, you guys can certainly find me on that Facebook group, and we can continue the conversations there. You can also find me on Twitter at the Lady of Lore, and of course, anywhere on the Clashing Sabers Network. I'm here. We also have Don't Burn the Sacred Text, which I would definitely keep your eye on over the next couple of weeks. We have some good stuff planned there that we're excited for. Um, but other than that, hit me up on Twitter and thank you again, Matt and Melanie for the awesome question and review respectively. We love hearing from you guys. So please let us know your thoughts or any questions you have. Yeah, absolutely. And um, until next time, batch eight. Hi, ho. See, it's That's it. It's better without Drew. That's what we need to do. We got that right. (laughs) Just like that. The podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use different informational and educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it. It's ours. They made it. It's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here.